Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the episode for March 9th through 15th, Jacob 1 through 4, Be Reconciled Unto God Through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited about the assignment this week. This is one of my favorite sections of scripture. And I always know that because when I'm going through like my print copy of my scriptures and I get to the sections that I've like really liked in the past, it's kind of like a color explosion of like highlighter marks and stuff like that. Not necessarily because I've learned any deep doctrine because y'all know I'm kind of shallow, but because I just really like the way it sounds. I like the way that it makes me feel. And so I always know that that's when I've hit one of my favorite chapters. And um, Jacob 4 for me this week was definitely one of those that was like fireworks of highlighters in my notes and stuff. So we're going to talk about it. But first, I want to give a major shout out to my latest five-star review on iTunes. This is Nini Pick gave me a five-star and said, it's like chatting with a good friend when you listen to The Savior Said. Thank you so much, Nini. You are a good friend. I'm grateful for that. If you would like to leave a five-star review for The Savior Said on iTunes, feel free to do so. It really just helps to spread the love that is The Savior Said with other people who may not have known about it. So feel free to do that. All right, so let's jump on in to our Come Follow Me assignment this week. And wait, hold up, hold up. Before we jump on in, I have one more thing I want to say. Um, If you stuck with me through last week's hot mess of an episode, thank you. Um, You know, it's like you know who your friends truly are when they see you at your worst and they still like you anyways. So if you stuck with me through like last week's, oh guys, just meltdown, um, and you're still here listening to today's episode... I love you. You are awesome. And if you're here for the first time, don't listen to last week's episode. Just listen to today's, okay? So we're going to have a good episode today. I'm excited about it. So let's jump in. And speaking of anxiety, like I talked about in last week's episode, it was very interesting to me to go in and read some of Jacob's words because I noticed the word anxiety popping up a lot. And so just out of curiosity, I did a quick search on how many times the word anxiety is used in the Book of Mormon. And the word anxiety is found eight different times in the Book of Mormon. And can you guess how many of those are referenced to like words of Jacob? Of the eight like instances of anxiety being mentioned in the Book of Mormon, four of those come from Jacob. So I tend to think Jacob had some anxiety going on. Um, He mentions it four different times. So let's talk about some of the scriptures where he feels anxiety. So in 2 Nephi 6, 3, this is like back in the previous like episode where, you know, we met Rahab and everything like that. And he was talking about then. So this isn't even like now after Nephi's died. Nephi's still alive at this point. And Jacob says, nevertheless... I speak unto you again, for I am desirous for the welfare of your souls. Yea, mine anxiety is great for you, and ye yourselves know that it ever has been. 
So also, not the first time he's had anxiety, but, you know, he's also had anxiety previously. Okay. For I have exhorted you with all diligence, and I have taught you the words of my Father, and I have spoken unto you concerning all things which are written from the creation of the world. Okay. That's the first time we see anxiety. Second time is in Jacob 1.5. He says, For because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. Okay, so he's got anxiety for his people. Jacob 2, 3. And ye yourselves know that I have hitherto been diligent in the office of my calling, but this day I am weighted down much with more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls than I have hitherto been. All right, so he's concerned about what they're doing. Jacob 4, 18. Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. If I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. I mean, do you see how Jacob is just like kind of caught up in all kinds of anxiety there? Um, It makes me feel kind of a real kinship towards Jacob. And also remember that this isn't the first time that we're meeting Jacob. We met Jacob back in 2 Nephi 6 through 11. He was kind of telling us a little bit about the history of the Jewish people. It's where Rahab the sea monster came from. So I'm thankful to Jacob for mentioning Rahab the sea monster. And, you know, we we learned a little bit from Isaiah and things like that from his teaching there. Um, It was interesting to me to go in and study Jacob as a teacher and the way that he was teaching. We're going to talk all about that in just a minute, but just some, you know, starting out of the gate thoughts. Jacob's got anxiety. It's interesting to me the way that he uses that in teaching, and we're going to find out all all about it. So stay tuned. Here we go. We are going to jump right into the introduction to Come Follow Me. The Nephites considered Nephi their great protector. He had defended them against attacks from their enemies, and he had warned them about spiritual dangers. Now he was gone, which, by the way, that was sad saying goodbye to Nephi. Um, You know, I, I grew to kind of bond with him over the past couple months here, and it was sad to say goodbye to him. And the task of leading the Nephites spiritually fell to Jacob, whom Nephi had consecrated to be a priest and teacher of the people. By inspiration, Jacob perceived that his people needed to be taught with much boldness, for they were beginning to labor in sin. These sins were much like what people today struggle with, the love of riches and sexual immorality. And yet while Jacob felt that he had to condemn this wickedness, his heart also ached for its victims, whose hearts had been pierced with deep wounds. Jacob testified that healing for both groups, the sinner and the spiritually wounded, come from the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jacob's message, like the message of Nephi before him, was a call to be reconciled unto God through the atonement of Christ. Okay, one of the things that the introduction mentions there that is one of my favorite aspects of the atonement is that when something goes wrong in life, the atonement covers not only the person who caused the thing to go wrong, as come follow me references them, the sinner, and then also the spiritually wounded, the victim of whatever sin has been perpetuated. Um, the atonement reaches both of them and it heals both of them and it brings both of them back to Christ. And that is one of the most beautiful things of the atonement is that it, it reaches out in both directions. And not only does it reach out in both directions, but it feels both directions. You know, the person who's caused the sin and who wants to come back to God, like Christ knows what that feels like, right? Because he knows everything we're going through. But the person who's had the sin committed against them, I guess the victim of the sin, 
he knows what that person feels like there too. And it's just that an infinite atonement is just an amazing concept to me that it can cover both sides of whatever is happening in that particular moment. So um, I really like that the introduction this week kind of covered that. Okay. So let's start in with the first section. The Lord wants me to magnify my calling. And we read this here in Jacob. And Jacob specifically says that he got his calling from the Lord. Of course, Nephi also asked him to be the teacher for the people. But in Jacob 1.17, he says, Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words as I taught them in the temple, having first obtained my errand from the Lord. And that to me was an interesting thing to think about. Well, number one, He's teaching them in the temple. So to me, that shows that he's also kind of kept a lot of the traditions and not just him, but like the people in general have kept a lot of the traditions that they had in Jerusalem. You know, the teaching in the temple, like that's where people went to learn about God and to come closer to God. And so Jacob was teaching the people there. Um, It was also interesting to me that he obtained his errand from the Lord. And Come Follow Me asks all kinds of questions about how do you magnify your church callings and things like that, which I think is important. And, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. But I also think that there are callings that we receive in this life that come not necessarily in the manner of like, you know, at church, your bishop calls you into the office and like says, hey, will you do this calling? But I think you get callings throughout your life that are obtained from the Lord. Um, an example of this would be to be a mother. I think being a mother is a calling that you get from the Lord. Another example of this would be, you know, being a ministering sister or a ministering brother and not necessarily even, you know, your Relief Society president calls you to minister to a person, but you just feel in your heart that you need to minister to this person. And maybe they're not even a member of our church. Maybe it's somebody, you know, you work with and you just really feel a calling to minister to that person. Um, one of the phrases that I hear a lot in the South is that they've just put this person on my heart. You know, the Lord just put, like, let's say Marianne is the person's name. And a friend at work will say, oh, you know, the Lord just put Marianne on my heart this week. I just have Marianne in my heart and I just really need to focus on Marianne. And so I love that phrase because it's it's a calling. It's a calling to serve that person. So when you feel that errand from the Lord that he's put someone on your heart this week, you know, to focus on them, that's a calling from the Lord. And so I feel like Jacob is having this experience where, you know, he's got his people on his heart this week and he knows specifically what he needs to talk to them about. Now, he's got anxiety as he does so because the things that he needs to talk to his people about are not comfortable topics. They are not fun topics. They are not, you know, um, I'm going to make you feel good about life topics. And he's really concerned about that because he's going to have to address both the sinners and then the ones wronged by the sin. You know, like we talked about the atonement addresses both sides that he's going to be addressing um, both of those people who have been impacted by these sins. And I think, you know, yeah, I would have a little bit of anxiety too. So um, Jacob, yeah, bud. I, I felt a lot for him this week. Okay, going back into Come Follow Me. Um, it has a really good quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley. And it says, President Gordon B. Hinckley taught that we magnify our callings as we serve with diligence, as we teach with faith and testimony, as we lift and strengthen and build convictions of righteousness in those whose lives we touch. So there's three things that I see there. Number one, serving with diligence. And I have to say, probably out of the three things that he mentions there, that's probably the one I struggle with the most. Like, And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I have a really hard time being like steady and being 
not not faithful, but like being constant, I guess is the best way to put it. I'm kind of flaky. Um, you know, my ability to serve is kind of often changing. Like sometimes I'm a hundred percent, sometimes I'm like 30%, sometimes I'm 60%, you know, in whatever calling I'm in. Um, and I think that's normal for everyone, but the ability to be diligent with everything that you're doing in a calling, to me, that is a goal that I need to strive for. And it's something that I want to strive for. And a goal that I set for myself is to be more there, be more present in the callings that I have and to be more diligent, be more dependable on those who I'm serving with. Um, because I think sometimes they think I'm a little flaky. So it's important to me to be dependable. So that's that's a goal that I learned this week from Come Follow Me. Um, the other parts of Gordon B. Hinckley's quote, we teach with faith and testimony. I love that so much because I feel like when we teach, not only are we strengthening the people that we're teaching, but we're also building our own testimony at the same time, which is beautiful. And then it also says, as we lift and strengthen and build convictions of righteousness in those whose lives we touch. I love the idea of touching someone's life and then also strengthening their conviction to righteousness. Um, I just love that. I love that whole quote there. And again, you know, it's it's going to be talking about church callings, but I guess I just feel so strongly about the callings we receive from the Lord because, you know, as someone who works with kids, that is a calling that I feel very seriously um, came to me from the Lord to be his representative to these little kids who, you know, may not have anybody else in their life that can represent Christ to them and his love to them and show them that he he loves them and that they can be loved and they're worth being loved and to be comfortable with. And, you know, that's a calling that I see from the Lord. And that's not even necessarily like a spiritual calling. It's just a calling that I have in my life um, is to love these little ones that have been entrusted in my care. And so, I mean, there's all kinds of different callings, different ways, different talents that we've been given to, we can use to magnify our our callings that we've been given, I guess. And it's all in his service. It's all to make this world a better place. It's all to make our brothers and sisters, you know, happier and healthier and safer and more close to God, I guess, if if that makes any sense. All right. I know that was a little bit of a rabbit trail there. (laughs) Sorry, guys. And Come Follow Me says... Think about your own errands from the Lord. Okay, so church callings or, you know, the callings you've received from the Lord. As you read Jacob, and we are going to read 1, 6 through 8, and then 15 through 19. Okay, so here we go. And we had also revelations and the spirit of much prophecy. Wherefore, we knew of Christ and his kingdom, which should come. All right, pause. So we know that a lot of times when they use the word prophecy or the spirit of prophecy, it's talking about a testimony of Jesus Christ. So we also had revelations towards our testimonies of Jesus Christ. And we knew of Christ and his kingdom, which should come, which I love that. You know, Christ is number one in their minds, which is awesome. Okay, unpause. We're going into seven. Wherefore, we labored diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into his rest, lest by any means he should swear in his wrath that they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Wherefore, we would to God that they would we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ." and view his death, and suffer his cross, and bear the shame of the world. Wherefore, I, Jacob, take it upon me to fulfill the commandment of my brother Nephi. 
And now it came to pass that the people of Nephi, under the reign of the second king, began to grow hard in their hearts, and to indulge themselves somewhat in wicked practices, such as unto David of old, desiring many wives and concubines, and also Solomon his son. Yea, and they also began to search much gold and silver, and began to be lifted up somewhat in pride. Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words as I taught them in the temple, having first obtained my errand of the Lord. We already read that, but we're doing it again. For I, Jacob, and my brother Joseph had been consecrated priests and teachers of this people by the hand of Nephi. And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking us upon the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments and we would not be found spotless at the last day. Okay, so this whole blood on the garments thing is interesting to me um, because it seems to be one of Jacob's like motivating factors is that he doesn't want to be found guilty because he hasn't done his job to teach the peoples and they've sinned and he doesn't want their sins like on his head. Um which is, I don't know. It, to me, it doesn't seem like it's the best way to build a teacher-student relationship. Like, I'm trying to teach you so that I'm not held accountable for what you don't know. Um, I don't know. I That's that's not my favorite way to phrase it. But, um, and then he's also not the first person to say it that way. We also, or I guess not the first, but the only. We also see it in Mosiah. He mentions that as well. And so, I don't know. It's it's just an interesting kind of, I guess, imagery there. And I wonder if maybe there is some kind of Jewish culture thing behind it. I'm not sure. That's just me like guessing and throwing that out there because it does show up again. So I don't know. Interesting to me. The blood on the garments. I want to be spotless of you not knowing stuff. You know, I don't know. Is another spot where this just feels really Old Testament-y to me, I guess. Um, So (laughs) that just kind of stood out to me. Okay, let's go back into Come Follow Me. All right. So why did Jacob serve so faithfully? And again, why, why are we being obedient? It comes back to that question that I've been thinking a lot about since the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Are we being obedient out of a sense of duty? Are we being obedient out of a sense of fear? Are we being obedient out of a sense of love? And I think Jacob, deep down... He is being obedient out of a sense of love. And I think we can see that through his words when he's talking, especially when he's talking about the atonement of Christ. You know, I see great love there, love for his Savior and also for bringing his people back to the Savior. Um, But in his mind, like what he's telling himself, you know, he's getting all up in his head with his anxiety situation. Um, What he's telling himself is that he's doing it because he's afraid. He's afraid that if he doesn't, he's going to be in trouble. And so he's telling himself that, but I don't think that's really his motivation. I think his real motivation is love. All right, going back to come follow me. What does his example inspire you to do to magnify your church callings and your responsibilities at home? Well, like I mentioned before, to be more diligent um, and dependable and faithful and always there, you know, when I need to be and that I can be the kind of person that someone can count on to fulfill my calling and to fulfill the role that they've asked me to do and that the Lord can count on me to fulfill whatever role he's given me in whatever spot I'm in. And that's really, I guess, what it's inspired me to do is to work towards that goal of being, you know, 100% there 100% of the time, which is not an easy thing to do, especially when you live in a world that has like so many different, I guess, pulling and leanings on your time and different ways that you can spend your time. Like, do I really want to spend my time prepping for like this, I guess, presidency meeting or whatever? Or do I want to eat chocolate and watch reality TV? Like, these are the things that weigh on my mind. And um, there's one that I would much rather do than the other, but 
it's not anything of worth. Sitting in front of, you know, the TV, watching reality TV, that's trashy. Like, that's not going to make me a better person. And it's just sitting there wasting my time away. But for some reason, I just get so addicted to it. I don't know. Okay, that's neither here nor there. We're going to jump back into Come Follow Me now. Okay, speaking of trashy reality TV, it goes along well with um, the next section we have. And it is, The Lord Delights in Chastity. Sin has consequences for individuals and for societies. In speaking about sexual sin, Jacob warned of both types of consequences. When you read Jacob 2, 31 through 35 and 310, look for ways immorality was affecting the Nephites as a people and as individuals. Okay, so let's do that real quick. So here we go. Jacob 2, 31 through 35. For behold, I, the Lord, have seen the sorrow and heard the mourning of the daughters of my people in the land of Jerusalem, yea, and in all the lands of my people, because of the wickedness and the abominations of their husbands. 32. And I will not suffer, saith the Lord of hosts, that the cries of the fair daughters of this people, which I have led out of the land of Jerusalem, shall come up to me against the men of my people, saith the Lord of hosts. For they shall not be led away captive, the daughters of my people, because of their tenderness. Save I shall visit them with a sore curse, even unto destruction. For they shall not commit whoredoms like unto them of old, saith the Lord of hosts. And now behold, my brethren, ye know that these commandments were given to our father Lehi. Wherefore, ye have known them before, and ye have come unto great condemnation. For ye have done these things which ye ought not to have done. Behold, you have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren, for you have broken the hearts of your tender wives. You've lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. And the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts died, pierced with deep wounds. Ouch, that's a little harsh, right? So that's actually in 35, Jacob 2, 35. Um, And that's really where I see probably the most societal impacts that we see described here, where it talks, you've broken the hearts of your tender wives and you've lost the confidence of your children. Um, You know, are these kids, how are they seeing you act? Are they going to have good examples to grow up and be like? And and they see their moms crying over your behavior. And how does that impact them as they're growing up? You know, that kind of thing. All right. So let's look at Jacob 3.10, which was the other verse we were directed to. And it says, wherefore, you shall remember your children. How that ye have grieved their hearts because of the example that ye have set before them. And also remember that ye may, because of your filthiness, bring your children unto destruction, and their sins be heaped upon your heads at the last day. Okay, so we've got those scriptures there. Then come follow me says, how are these ways similar to the consequences of immorality you see in today's world? Okay, so pause. Um, if you have kids who are listening to this episode of the podcast, I would suggest maybe you move them to another room at this point, because um, we are going to talk about sexual immorality today in today's world. So just know we're about to go a little bit more PG than normal, I guess you could say, on this episode. So here's some thoughts that I have on this. So there's all kinds of studies out there that talk about the benefits of waiting until marriage. Um, I found just three while I was researching um, for this particular episode. There's one from the Institute of Family Sciences. There's one from WebMD. And then there's another one from Science Daily, who compiles all kinds of different studies. And the study that they compiled in Science Daily was from Brigham Young University. But still, you know, it's still, it's it's legit research out there. And all three of these studies say that couples who decided to wait until marriage had a more stable relationship. They had a less likely chance of divorce. 
They reported better communication between the husband and wife. So you can see that these marriages are much more stable. I'm like 22% more stable is one of the quotes that there in the research. And I'll post these links there in my blog and stuff. But 22%, the relationships were more stable than the average marriage, I guess you could say. And when we have a stable marriage as the foundation for a family and we have a stable family as the foundation for society... All of a sudden, society benefits from that stable marriage. And so that's a huge blessing to society to have that stable marriage and that stable family union. Now, again, there are all kinds of instances and all kinds of cases and all kinds of different situations that people find themselves living in here in the church. Um, We like to talk in ideals. So if you are not in the perfect ideal situation, I don't want you to feel bad or that, you know, there's anything wrong with you. Just just know that this we're talking in ideals, okay? And I realize that there may be exceptions to these situations. Um, but I think it's important to know that that stability is there. Also, having been someone who um, waited until their wedding night, and it was really interesting when my husband and I were dating. Of course, he was not a member of the church before he met me. And so, you know, he, <laughs> I guess, followed some of the ways of the world and stuff like that. And so the conversations that we had before we got married was that he was like, this is just so different. He's like, it's so different waiting until we're married because all of a sudden it just really means something. It means so much more than if, you know, one night we decided that we really liked each other and, you know, things went on from there. Like it just means so much more. It's much more significant. And also I have to say, it was really hard for us to wait because he had gotten baptized and we wanted to wait the one year to be able to go to the temple and be sealed. And all kinds of people are like, oh, it's too hard to wait. You can't wait. You know, you don't want to wait that long. Why don't you just go get married civilly and then you can wait a year and you can get sealed in the temple. But to me, I was like, no, it's important. I, I really feel like it's important for us to wait for this one year and then go get married in the temple. Like, I just really feel like it's important for us to do that. And so we did. And waiting for one year when you're engaged is incredibly hard. But I'm so grateful that we did because here's the blessing that came from that. We were able to go be married in the temple. So I, I was married to him in the temple. Whereas like six months after, like he was already starting to fade away from the church. Whereas if we had been married, I think, civilly first and then trying to shoot for that one year anniversary to go get married in the temple. Again, I know it's different now, but this was like 10 years ago. So at the time, right, we would have had to wait one year to go be sealed in the temple. Um, Had we done that, I don't know that we would have made it to the temple to be sealed, you know. So to me, it was a huge blessing was to be able to go to the temple with him and be sealed and married for time and all eternity. Even though he's left the church now, I still have the blessing of being sealed to him. And so to me, it was worth it. Um, Also, you know, it talked about the children losing confidence in their parents. And I talked a little bit about, you know, how can the kids grow up in a situation like this? And I see it a lot. Um, As I have gone to work in a Title I school, we have about 60% or more of our kids come from really below poverty level homes, um, rural Alabama poverty level homes, okay, is what we're dealing with here. And with poverty comes all kinds of other consequences that honest and truly I had never before seen in my life. Um, you know, I have, I was raised in like a middle-class home. I had lots of different opportunities. I was very blessed with, and most of my life was spent in middle-class environments, right? So going into a situation here, where all of a sudden I'm dealing with poverty class homes and things like that. The whole family structure is different. Um, and not always, not always, not 100% of the time, but there's a lot of different things that happen in these homes and families that are just kind of shocking to me. 
And some of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of it has to relate to sexual behavior and the stuff that the kids are seeing at home. You know, we have kids coming to school and acting out things that they have been allowed to watch on TV or acting out behaviors that they have witnessed in their home or acting out things that have been done to them in their home. Um, The amount of kids that I work with that have been sexually abused is like nauseating to me. Um, It breaks my heart. A lot of times I have to come home and just like cry because I found out another kid that I just love and work with every day has been a victim of sexual abuse. And then you also find kids who are sexually abusing each other. And I mean, it's just, it's terrifying to see what these adults and their immorality is doing to these kids. And I know that it happens at every sort of income level and socioeconomic background. I know it happens everywhere. I just, I guess I've never seen it this concentrated. And so it's just been a very interesting experience to um, be part of this. But I really feel for these kids, and I really wonder, just like what Jacob was seeing there, do these kids have a chance? Do they have a chance to grow up and have a normal lifestyle? You know, like a couple weeks ago, there was a situation where there was a second grader who had reported something happening to her kindergarten sister on the bus. And she kept saying over and over again, oh, I made sure she knew it was not her fault. It was the boy's fault. It was not her fault. It was the boy's fault. This is a second grader, like an eight-year-old. And she's repeating this over and over again in a way that you can tell like it's been told to her. Like an adult has said, it's not your fault. It's the guy's fault. It's not your fault. It's the guy's fault. And... I'm just like, oh my gosh, like she's literally having to counsel a little sister through sexual abuse at a kindergarten age. You know, I mean, like this is the kind of like impact that we're having on these kids. And it's just terrifying to me. Um, I think also speaking of not only being in the poverty level, but my son, we live in a very middle-class neighborhood. And when he was in fourth grade, we had a kid come to school in the fourth, in there in his fourth grade class. And my son comes home one day and he says this phrase, a very pornographic phrase. And I'm like, where did you learn that? Like, oh, kind of horrified. And um, he told me it was this kid who had just moved in and that he taught him that phrase. And I'm like, where is, you know, a 10-year-old learning this pornographic phrase. Well, of course he's learning it at home. And that's terrifying again, too, that all of a sudden I'm having to explain to my child what this means. And he's 10 years old. And that kind of breaks his little naivete and his innocence. And I don't like that that's being taken away from him. You know, he now is 14 years old and he comes home all the time asking me like, well, what does this mean? And what does this mean? Because we're very open in our home and talk about, you know, sex and stuff like that. And we want him to be able to come to us for answers because, you know, we are so surrounded with immorality in our world today that we want him to have a moral center to come to for answers. And so he comes to us all the time asking us questions about different things that he's heard that day at school. And it's terrifying to me. You go and you start looking at the statistics of sex, sex text messaging, and um, the amount of boys who are asking for nude pictures from girls, the amount of girls who are sending nude pictures to boys, and the impact that it has on both of them psychologically. Like, again, like mind-blowingly scary, the stuff that our kids have gotten into. But who do we blame for that? Turn on the TV. Those trashy reality TV shows I'm watching that I shouldn't be watching. I mean, that is modeling this behavior that these kids are following. And if you go and you look at the statistics of, you know, sex and marriage and things like that, we're finding only 3% of couples are waiting till their wedding night. 3%. You know, the rest of 97% of America 
the role model that they are setting for these kids is that it's not okay to wait for marriage. You're just going to go and do, you know, whatever with whenever you you feel right for you. And I mean, it's just, it's terrifying, guys. Like, I'm just, it makes me worry so much. Um, And I guess it's just really been fresh on my mind because of that case of the second grader and the kindergartner and just watching them go through that was really horrifying. Um, Just really, really horrifying. So... This particular section in Come Follow Me this week really, I guess, hurt my heart. And it really struck home when I started thinking about the consequences of sexual immorality and the consequence it it has on our kids. Um, I think of another kid at school who her mother, she saw man after man um, come home with her mom. And um, she was eventually removed from the home and now lives with a foster family. But, you know, what impact did that have on her? Is she going to be able to have healthy relationships with men after seeing that when she was younger and living in a home where man after man came home, you know, with her mom and she knew what was going on? And I mean, it just, I have a really hard time with it. Okay. Um, I apologize if anything I said was offensive to anyone. Um, I hope it was not, but it's coming from a place where I'm just really concerned about these kids that I know and love. So um, that's where it's coming from. All right. Next paragraph in the section says, note that Jacob also addressed the practice of having more than one wife. What do you find in Jacob 2, 23 through 30 that helps you understand why the Lord has, in limited situations, commanded his people to practice plural marriage? How does he feel about those who do so without his authorization? Okay, I wanted to talk about this because this has been a big deal for me um, ever since... I can even think about being married. Um, the idea of plural marriage, like, like I, I have a really, really hard time with it. And so then I had a really hard time when we studied church history, like understanding why the Lord would allow that to happen. I mean, it, it, it's one of those points where I'm like, I just have to throw my hands up and trust God because I'm like, I just icky, icky, ooh, is kind of how I feel about it. But going into Jacob 2, 23 through 30 actually helped me a little bit this week with this. Let's jump in on 24, Jacob 2, 24. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. The Lord was not happy with this situation. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, 25, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of my arm, that I might raise up a righteous branch from the fruits of loins of Joseph. That to me was interesting. When you start thinking about small groups of people or small groups of believers like Abraham or, you know, the early saints, and all of a sudden you needed to create a large group of believers, the easiest way to do that, I guess, would be one man with many wives. Um, I don't like it. And, um, I don't think that it is what the Lord wants for his daughters, um, and his sons too. I don't think that that is a normal situation. I think that he has done it in cases where it's been necessary, but I don't think that it was a normal, regular thing that he would anticipate for us. Um, an example of something similar would be like, you know, where he told Nephi to go kill Laban. Um, something that is abhorrent. Murder is abhorrent, right? And it's not something that the Lord commands us to do. But in a certain situation, it was necessary. This is how I'm wrapping my mind around this, by the way, (laughs) y'all. I think as I'm talking out loud, I'm not telling you that this is how you believe. This is like me, how I'm like wrapping my mind around it and making it okay. All right. And even in 26, he says, wherefore I, the Lord God, will not suffer that this people shall do like unto them of old. Wherefore, my brethren, hear and hearken to the word of the Lord, for there shall not be any man among you, save it be what has one wife and concubines, he shall have none. 
For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and the whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore, this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, and cursed be the land for their sakes. And then in 30, it says, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people otherwise, and they shall hearken unto those things. So regular situation, guys, like, no, it's abominable. Do not take more than one wife. You know, stay faithful to the one wife you have. As my husband says, like, I can barely keep up with the one wife I have. Like, I could not even handle two women, like, in my life. <laughs> like, she's already a handful. I could not handle another one. It's something that has always really, really bothered me ever since I was a teenager. So I'm glad that we have it in such plain text here. I also have to wonder what it was like for Joseph Smith as he's going through and translating this. And he knows he's translated it. And then years down the road when he is commanded to institute plural marriage, like, what his thoughts were, were like, oh, no. Like, was it the same kind of feeling that Nephi had when he had to go kill Laban? You know, like that sinking feeling of like, I have to do something that is completely abhorrent to me um, and something that is totally against everything that I have ever been taught to stand for um, because the Lord's telling me to. Like, I have to think that that is just not a good or happy situation to be in. So um, I'm glad it wasn't me. Basically, I'm glad it wasn't me. All right. So. That was a tricky um, little section for us to talk about. So we're going to move on from that tricky little section into one of my favorite sections, um, Jacob 4. Jacob 4 is this, this chapter that I flipped over and it was like, you know, starbursts of color everywhere because I just really, really love this section so much. Um, the title of this particular Come Follow Me section says, I can be reconciled to God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Jacob pleaded with his people to be reconciled unto God through the atonement of Christ. What do you think that means? Well, we talked about reconciled means to sit with again, right? And that was from the Russell M. Nelson quote. It means to sit with again. All right. For one example, Jacob taught that the law of Moses was given to point to the people to Jesus Christ. See Jacob 4, 5. Okay, let's talk about, can I just, I just want to talk about the book of Jacob, Jacob 4. Let's, let's do that because this is what I love about it so much is everything they do points to Christ. And that needs to be everything we do in the church needs to point to Christ. So Jacob 4, 4, we're going to start there. It says, for this intent, have we written these things that they may know that we knew Christ and we had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but all the holy prophets, which were before us. So that's really cool to me because we don't always have in the Old Testament prophets mentioning Christ. I mean, we have several that do, but not all of them do. But here Jacob is telling us all the holy prophets that came before also knew about Christ and had testimonies of him and everything they did pointed towards him. And he says this again in five, behold, they believed in Christ. They worshiped the father in his name. Think about Moses and Abraham and Elijah worshiping heavenly father through the name of Christ. I mean, that's beautiful. And for this intent, we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls towards him. And for this cause, it sanctified us unto righteousness, even as it was accounted unto Abraham in the wilderness to be obedient unto the commands of God and offering up his son, Isaac, which was a similitude of God and his only begotten son. I love this right here because he sees the purpose of the law of Moses. And I feel like his brethren in Jerusalem, especially by the time that Christ come, have lost that sight. 
They've lost that goal of the law of Moses. But Jacob sees it so clearly, and he explains it so clearly and beautifully here. And I love that he does that. And then in 6, he talks about, we search the prophets, we search our scriptures, having many revelations and the spirit of prophecy, having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope that our faith becometh unshaken in so much that we can truly command in the name of Jesus Christ and the very trees obey us or the mountains or the waves of the sea. I'm like, whoa, that is like some awesome faith there. But nevertheless, in seven, the Lord God showeth unto us our weaknesses that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. I love that they talk there that even in the midst of our faith, we're still weak. We can't do this on our own, and we need his grace, and we need his goodness in our life. All right. Eight, behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths and the mysteries of him, and it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. You know, look towards God. Look towards the things that he wants to reveal to you, because here's the thing. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to be reconciled to him. He wants you to know his son and to be able to come closer to him because of his son. And once we start looking towards God, we learn more about his son. We learn more about how to come to him, how to be more like them, how to make our will aligned with their will. And then I'm going to skip down to 10 because this scripture had a lot of meaning for me this week. 10 is one of my favorites. Um, it says, Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. I actually have to tell myself that all the time. Like, cause I find myself in prayer sometimes to my heavenly father being like, okay, heavenly father, I've got this situation and I need it to work out like this. And this needs to happen and this needs to happen. And here's my to-do list and let's get it done. Heavenly father. And you know, he kind of just sits there silently and I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's not supposed to happen quite like that. And he's like, mm-hmm, yeah, you, you're getting it. And then I have to be like, oh, Heavenly Father, how how do you want this to happen? And then he's like, okay, now we're talking. Let's talk about it, you know, step by step. This is how it needs to happen, Lexi, not the way that you are trying to tell me it will happen. And thank goodness for that, because there are so many times where I would have like gotten in my own way of different things happening if it hadn't been for him and his counsel and working things out in his way, not my way, you know, so I'm very grateful to that. But it's also to me very comforting because going back into verse nine, we skipped over it because I wanted to talk about 10 first, but we go back into verse nine. It says, behold, by the power of his word, man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Wherefore, if God being able to speak in the world was and to speak and man created, oh, then why not able to command the earth or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? And all this right here reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite books. And the book is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. And if you've never read that book, I recommend you do. It's a fable. So it's definitely like one of those things where I can read it and get something totally different out of it than the person sitting next to me will. Um, So, you know, it's, it's different what you get out of it. But one of my favorite quotes from it is it says, Fear evaporates when we understand that our life stories and the history of the world were written by the same hand. Isn't that beautiful? Like the same hand that created earth, the same hand that created man is now creating our life and our stories in our lives and the path that our lives are taken. So don't try and tell the creator 
how to run his ship. Like he's got this, right? And I do all the time. And that's something I have to check myself on, which is why that scripture just stood out to me so plainly this week. And there was even a situation I had something in my calling that I needed to do. And I was trying to make it happen on my own and it just was not happening. And I was like, Heavenly Father, it needs to work out this way. And I need these people to do this and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I just had to have a moment where I was like, okay, let go. Let go and let God, you know, let go and let God and let him do his thing. And and it's all working out much better than it would if I had just tried to like bulldoze my way through it, Um, which is kind of my style. It's kind of like probably what I would have done, but I'm grateful for that chance that I had to listen to him. So I hope that this has been a good episode this week for you. Um, I'm sorry for kind of like the little rant that I went off on on sexual immorality. Again, I hope it didn't offend anybody, but thank you for listening. Thank you for being a friend like the Golden Girls. And I hope you have an excellent week. I will see you guys here next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in the Savior said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.